Welcome back to Practicing Catholic. Patrick Conley, glad to be with you again, along with Cammie Ruthum, our producer, Paul Sadek, our technical producer, t- coming to you through the relevant Radio 1330 AM studios in Golden Valley. You know, I always get excited about hearing from our next guest. Allison Spees is the Archives Program Manager for the Archdiocese and a wealth of information on our collective past. Allison, I'm not kidding when I say that I always look forward to your segments on our show. Thanks for being with us again. Thank you. That's so kind. It's a real privilege to be able to be on the show. Yeah, fantastic. So today, I think, as I understand it, we're talking about Bishop Thomas Grace. Am I right about that? That's right. And I thought I wanted to talk about him because he is sometimes called the forgotten bishop of the Diocese of St. Paul. And so I thought I'd give him a little bit of airtime. Oh, great. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, so so why is he the forgotten bishop? Well, he was very reserved and humble. He didn't talk or write about himself, and he didn't leave very many personal papers, even though he served the diocese for a quarter century. Um, he was a religious order priest initially, and so humility, of course, is a very strong virtue yeah. among them. And so there's just not a lot of evidence. And there, of the books that came out while he was here, everyone said, well, everyone knows how important he is, so we don't need to write about it. So there's just <laughs> not a lot of documentation from his career. Um, but we do have enough to, to learn a little bit about really how instrumental he was in the forming of the diocese. Okay, so, I mean, he's... So far, your description of him says that I mean he's quite the he's the man of he's a man of God, right? I mean he he sounds like he's he's great. So does he have any you know less than ideal qualities about him? Too? Uh, well, maybe I should pump him up a little bit more before I talk about that. So he uh, Thomas Grace he was the second bishop of Saint Paul. So he followed shortly in the footsteps after Bishop Creighton passed away after his okay. very short career of six or seven years. Um, Grace was born in South Carolina to Irish immigrant parents. So he was the first American-born bishop in St. Paul. A very modest family. They moved around quite a bit um, in the South. He joined the Dominican Order in his early teens. Um, mm. He was actually the first South Carolina native to be ordained to the priesthood. And um, he was educated formally for seven years in Italy. So he got this very refined education um, he returned to minister in Kentucky and was a pastor in Memphis for 13 years when he was appointed Bishop of St. Paul. Um, and his every description that I read of him was just nothing but glowing. Um, he was brilliant, cultivated, right. noble, prudent, charming, pious, a uniquely talented speaker, the foremost gentleman and most beloved citizen of his town. <laughs> so there was like, and no hint of ostentation about this guy, just very really? humble and, and just the ideal man. But as you mentioned, he did have some less than ideal qualities. So because he was so measured and so put together, uh, he maybe wasn't super fun. Um, and he was very concerned with propriety. Um, and one of, I think, one of the most telling anecdotes of his career, <laughs> which is maybe not one he wished we would share, but um, at the very founding of Immaculate Conception in Minneapolis, which is, of course, now the Basilica of Minneapolis, a very prominent parish, um, the dedication was scheduled and Grace was set to participate in the dedication of the church. And the pastor was so excited that he kind of exuberantly put posters all over town advertising the dedication event. And Grace found this to be um, very off-putting and refused to attend uh, just oh. because of the vulgarity of all of the posters everywhere. Oh, really? 
Yeah, um, he also was instrumental in putting in place rules that forbade uh, dancing, picnics, alcohol, young housekeepers, no priests in the saloons, and he was also very opposed to ladies doing anything outside of the home. So there were a few things that we might look uh. at as less than less than exciting today. But um, other than that, he he was really well known for just being an extremely virtuous and and wonderful man. Yeah, and uh, yeah, maybe in the times, uh, some of these restrictions anyway might have been a little bit more appropriate, I suppose. Yeah, but, uh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so what are some of the what are the key tasks, the key things that he did during his tenure as bishop? Well, he started out right away. He hit the ground running, and he personally went and visited most of the territory of the diocese, which was no small feat. I mean, it encompassed all of Minnesota and most of the Dakotas. Um, He was the first bishop to actually visit most of these far-flung missions Mm -hmm. in the north and west of the territory, and he endured grueling traveling conditions to to make a point of visiting those communities and providing sermons in English, sometimes for the first time. Mm -hmm. Um, He also helped to he essentially took on all of the administrative organization of the diocese because um, not much groundwork had been laid for him um, with Creighton's very short career as bishop. Uh, so he set about establishing deaneries, establishing basic rules, a constitution for the priests, um, and really even the structure of the geography of the diocese was kind of his idea that it was too big to administer well, especially with the explosion of the immigrant population that was happening. And he suggested splitting off part of the territory into new dioceses, and um, his plan was taken in, and uh, they formed the northern Minnesota Vicariate and the Dakotas, which eventually became the diocese structure that we have today. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. He sounds like a very busy man in the midst of all this. He was, and it's interesting because he he was such a capable leader, um, but he really didn't want to be at first. Um, When he was initially appointed Bishop of St. Paul, um, he mailed the papal bull appointing him back to Rome as a declining the position. Um, But as it happened, he wasn't the first choice. The first person who was selected to be bishop was a Father Pellemorg from Iowa, and he had already refused the position. It was not a popular place to be, and the Vatican just wasn't going to take no as an answer twice. So they insisted, and he came. (laughs) Yeah. Huh. Well, I I suppose, I mean, it has been said that if you know the best the best man for the job of bishop is the guy who doesn't want the job right or something yeah, yeah. so i guess that all the more is is a feather in, another feather in his cap yeah i if i can insert a little yeah, side please. note here um during his episcopacy um then father john ireland was um he was mentored by archbishop grace or sorry ah. bishop grace at the time um and he was such an enthusiastic priest that, of course, Grace really relied heavily on his assistance. And during that time, Arch, um, Archbishop, eventual Archbishop Ireland was selected to lead Omaha, the Vicariate of Nebraska. Mm-hmm. And when Grace heard about this, he immediately sailed to Rome, met in person with the Pope, begging him not to move Ireland out of Minnesota. Really? And... Um, Ireland himself followed in Grace's footsteps by mailing back the letter appointing him. And as it happened, that letter was on a steamship that sank off the coast of England. So his reply never arrived. But Grace argued so 
eloquently <laughs> that they agreed to let Ireland stay in Minnesota and instead appointed him as coadjutor bishop and really set the course for the Minnesota diocese for the foreseeable 50 years. That's amazing. <laughs> now, uh, so Bishop Grace was, I mean, he was the middle of the 19th century, right? That's, uh, I mean, this is this is kind of what we're talking about in terms yeah, of his episcopacy, middle to late. Yes, absolutely. He was appointed in 1859. Yeah. So, uh, what about the Civil War? I mean, what kind of what kind of impact? Especially, I mean, he you said he's from South Carolina. Yeah, and so. he was educated in Kentucky and posted in Tennessee for more than a decade. So he really was a a child of the South. And there were some kind of raised eyebrows occasionally uh, during the Civil War about his heritage, but there's no evidence that he was anything except completely loyal to the Union. And in fact, um, he argued very heavily for um, Minnesotans to enlist in the cause of defending the Union um, and was really outspoken in his loyalty to the federal government. Um, so there's really no indication that the, he had any leanings towards Southern loyalties. Um, but I think it, what's interesting is that the Civil War didn't seem to have much of an impact on his episcopate, but what did was the Dakota War of 1862, um, sometimes called the Dakota Uprising, which, of course, was a violent clash between the Dakota and the settlers in Minnesota, which ended in the largest one-day execution in American history. Um, and I think one of the reasons that that particular event was so impactful for him um, was that he had a, developed a very personal relationship with the tribes of Minnesota um, and was very concerned with their well-being. And we have a letter in our collection that he wrote three days after the execution to President Lincoln, um, really admonishing the fact that the Department of Indian Affairs had historically just been ignoring all of the sentiments of the Indians. And um, I think there's some intimation that he thinks that the massacres could have been prevented if they had been listened to. And I... Um, of course, the relationship between the church and the Native Americans is very complex and fraught, and attitudes right. back then were wildly different. Some of the language that's used in these papers today we would consider, honestly, just abhorrent, um, and that shouldn't be negated. But I think it's interesting to note how much energy Bishop Grace spent trying to get the voices of the Native American people heard and honored. And even though he was ultimately unsuccessful, it's really a testament to his compassionate character that he's, that was a subject very dear to his heart. And he was actually famous for that, for advocating for them. Wow. Wow. God bless him. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Now I have to ask, I mean, you mentioned that he was, uh, he, he had joined up with the Dominicans and having a uh, some Dominican priests and Dominican sisters who are very good friends. Uh, yeah. I'm just curious about that too. Did he ever? I mean, was he still a Dominican? Did he return with involvement as, to involvement with the Dominicans throughout his episcopate, or how did that work? That's a really great question, and actually, I think it ties into the last topic a little bit because when um, when he took his first profession with the Dominicans, he was like 15. And it was with a group of five other men, two of whom were of the Ottawa tribe. Um, and so I sometimes wonder if his friendship with them really shaped his interest in the causes of the Native Americans. But um, after he was appointed Bishop of St. Paul, he did not go back to his monastery in Kentucky until once, just weeks before he died. So this was 40 years later. Wow. Um, and he didn't stay long. And he had actually received special permission from Rome 
to wear the secular cassock of a diocesan bishop rather than the white uh, cassock that a Dominican normally would wear. And so there's maybe some idea that he had started to identify more with his Minnesota place um, than his Dominican roots. Although in his letter, his fastidiousness kind of comes out, and he claims that his reason for asking for that special permission is because the white cassock was so hard to keep clean. Yeah, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Some practicalities never hurt. (laughs) That's very good. Very good. Well, Allison, we've only got just over a minute left, and uh, okay. but uh, just can you say something in sum about him, like his his uh, his lasting historical impact, his legacy, if you will, uh, yeah, something about yeah. Bishop Grace. Absolutely. So it's so hard to summarize, of course, an entire lifetime in ten minutes. But um, and he really was. He worked in the background, and his dreams were realized through others. But he did all of the work of paving the way for his successors to be successful, and literally shaped the geography of the diocese, took it in transition from a frontier village to through an exploding population in this critical formative period into a really um, cosmopolitan center of Catholicism. He initiated the idea of the Catholic University of America, the seminary, wow. the Catholic newspaper industry. He was really instrumental in a lot of those ideas. Uh, he just doesn't necessarily get the headlines for it. Wow. I mean, what a what a guy! <laughs> Maybe we can do a part two. <laughs> yeah, I I'm just I'm fascinated. Are there I mean, are there any biographies written on this guy? I mean, can you can you find out more if you're not an archdiocesan archivist somewhere? <laughs> that is a really good question. You know, I I don't know of any biographies of him as a single individual, but there are some great anecdotes of him in the histories of the diocese, the mm-hmm. uh, Reardon's history from the 1950s, and um, Pilgrims to the Northland by Marvin yeah. O'Connell, which is a fabulous resource. Um, I pulled heavily from their work. So um, much credit to them. And I definitely recommend that people check out those publications. Fantastic. Well, Allison, it's always a pleasure, always a joy to speak with you. Thank you for bringing us the legacy of Bishop Thomas Grace and uh, helping us to understand how how the provision of God has worked through him even up until today. Thanks, Allison. Thank you for the opportunity. Have a great day. You too. Wow. What great stuff. Thanks to Allison for all her research and work and and just inspiring us with that story. And thank you, God, for Bishop Thomas Grace as well. All right, we're going to go into our final break. Practicing our faith is a massive undertaking. See what I did there? Mass is essential, but right after this break, Paul and I will have some other ideas for building up your relationship with Jesus. So stay with us. 